Hello and welcome to the first episode for December 2023 of the BV podcast, bringing you a slice of rural Dorset life. I'm Jenny Devitt. And hello from me, Terry Bennett. In this episode, we'll have your letters. Editor Laura visits Hazelbury Bryan Parish Church to meet some local school children who are making a noise against bullying. Jane Adams has been discovering the miniature world of lichens and mosses. And renowned Dutch harpist Gwyneth Ventink talks a bit about herself and chooses her Dorset Island discs. We start, as ever with the first episode, with our editor Laura's letter. Last Christmas, I saw a tweet written by somebody hunting for some very specific items, and for whatever reason it stayed with me. She wanted suggestions on where to find the perfect crumble dish, a soft blanket that was large enough for a six-foot man asleep on a sofa, and a specific set of pink vintage tumblers to match a jug. That list has lived on in my head ever since, rent-free, as my teenagers would say. It's such a perfect, thoughtful, careful list of gifts. Did her sister know that the list writer thought her crumble was the best and worthy of a very special dish of its own? Did the man who nods off on the sofa appreciate a big enough blanket? Did she ever find and replace the broken glassware? I'll never know. But I do know I try and create my own version of this list every time I buy a gift. What does my person truly love, want or need? Gifts of an offer of our love and respect. A that'll do present bought in haste is neither lovely to give or thrilling to receive. The very best thing about giving a gift is seeing the other person's face light up, letting you know you got it just right. As we all face another winter of climbing bills and narrowing bank accounts, it's not a bad thing to focus on the small, thoughtful things that somehow always end up meaning the most. If you think back, I'm willing to bet that your most treasured gifts weren't the expensive ones, they were the thoughtful ones. As you'd expect, there's a lot about Christmas gift buying in this December issue, and we've covered as many local producers, crafters, makers, growers and servers as we possibly could. Do please click their links, visit their shops, just have a browse. If we all do just a little, if each of us buys just one or two thoughtful items from local businesses, or even simply like and share their social media posts, together we really can make a lot of difference to a lot of people. Lastly, I think it's good to remember at this time of year that Christmas is a terrific amplifier. Love gets lovelier, hurt gets hurtier, loss gets lossier, lonely gets lonelier and family gets crazier. Thank you for a wonderful, frantic, ridiculous year. We are off to light the fire, warm some wine, eat a mince pie or three and enjoy having a full nest for the first time in a year as our biggest ones come home from America. Have a wonderful, wonderful month. Oh, P.S., Don't forget we'll be out late in January. We're taking Christmas off. We rather think we've earned it. Letters to the editor. And the first is on the Blandford Pimpern planning decision. And this one is from Bridget Brown via Facebook. Dorset Council should be thoroughly ashamed of themselves. So much brownfield land available and housing stock unused. Given the state of the housing market, I rather suspect, however, that it might be mothballed by the developer as homes are struggling to get sold. And John Hart on Facebook also wrote in about the Blandford Pimpern planning decision. Great news for all the local people who just can't get on the housing ladder in Blandford as house prices are so overinflated in the area due to people living longer. It's fifty to seventy thousand pounds cheaper to live in the Shaftesbury Gillingham areas than it is in Blandford, forcing those who have family and family links to Blandford outside of their town as they can't afford to find somewhere to buy. 
All this nonsense about destroying the AONB is just pure nimbyism by the very people who want to protect their overvalued house prices. While there is a lack of infrastructure within Blandford, this isn't a local issue. It's a national issue that central government isn't addressing. However, the lack of housing and affordable housing is critical in this area, and these houses will go towards easing that pressure. Kevin Maitland-Gleed also contributes via Facebook. I think there's a clear case for the application to be called in for review by the Secretary of State. It's clearly a breach of an adopted local plan, and even if the Dorset Council has not agreed their structure plan, the previous plan is the agreed guidance. The perceived benefits are just smoke and mirrors. I can only praise the Pimpern Parish Chairman for standing up for his parish, the AONB, and against a clumsy planning decision. Bob Dimmock of Gillingham wrote in to say, For 80 years I've lived on this earth, most of them filled with mirth. I've had a good life, a jolly good time, and like to mark occasions with a rhyme. And now I'm told I'll be rewarded for living so long with an increase in pension. This must be wrong. 25 pence a week is the amount I'll receive. Surely my eyes do deceive. This sum hasn't been significant since it was five bob back in the 60s when I first had a job. For 45 years I've worked, often 12 hours a day, only to be insulted in such a way. Appalled in Blandford, otherwise known as Mary White, writes as follows. I'm just catching up on the October issue and I wanted to send a note of horrified solidarity to editor Laura on the subject of the cheese incident. That's a letter from the editor, October 2023. Firstly, butter has no place on a cheese plate. What were they thinking? Of course you didn't expect it. It had no right to be there. Secondly, I suspect we've all done it. Laura responds, thank you for your support at this difficult time, Mary. Needless to say, it's more than I received from sea. Pauline White of Sherborne writes in about the night sky. I had no request, she says, to send Rob Nolan for his Christmas picture. I don't know enough about space objects to ask for one by name. His images are always worth stopping to appreciate, but I wanted to thank him for his stargazing notes. I've developed a new bedtime routine of checking the clouds before I lock the back door, and if it's clear, I'll pop out into the garden for a few minutes and look up. I make note of the special dates, confidently point out various planets, and look for meteor showers with my grandchildren. They think I'm a wise old woman who understands the stars, but I'm just repeating what Rob says. Thank you, Rob. On the Willow Ships I'm just sending a thank you for your continued BV magazine and the BV podcasts. I found the recent article about Willow Coffins very interesting. That was mentioned in November's BV, and then there was a fascinating follow-up interview with Kath on the podcast. Particularly the part about ashes departing on a Viking ship and being set alight at sea. My sister lives in Ipswich and has told me many times over the years about the Sutton Hoo treasures and the Viking ship discovered inside a burial mound there. The idea of using a willow shopping trolley amused me, though. I'm old enough to remember little old ladies using them. It always used to make us laugh. I'd love to see a uni student wheeling their books to lectures using one. That's from Sheila Lockyer via email. Penny Feet, who's a festival committee member, wrote in about the Gillingham Walking Festival. Once again, she says, this event was very successful, with approximately 150 walkers taking part in September's Gillingham Walking Festival. 
This year we had 15 walks of varying lengths and difficulty to various locations around Gillingham. Some involved public or minibus transport, some included a stop for refreshments, and some followed a route included in the new pack of eight circular walks from Gillingham Station, which was launched on the first day of the festival. Free printed copies can be obtained from the station or Gillingham Library and other venues around the town, and a digital version is available on the Gillingham Walking Festival website. The festival was begun in 2014 as part of the Gillingham Walkers Are Welcome initiative. For the last few years, it's been run by a committee of helpers, each with their own role and coordinated by Sheila Messer. Enormous thanks are due to Sheila for her enthusiasm in facilitating walking in Gillingham. Now, however, Sheila has decided it's time for her to step down and to hand the reins to a new coordinator, provided one can be found. The current committee are happy to continue their work, but are unable to take on the coordinator role. Could you, or someone you know, step into this role to ensure the future of the festival? If you'd like to find out more, please contact Sheila on 01747 821 269 or email her on hotmail.com and the messer is spelt M-E-S-S-E-R, so messersheila, one word, at hotmail.com. Daniel Forth of Wimborne says, This week I learned about Dutch supermarkets introducing chat checkout lanes, allowing for leisurely conversations between customers and cashiers. This popular initiative, now in 200 stores, is similar to the French Carrefour blah 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 kiss. While self-checkout is convenient for quick visits, I've noticed many, particularly older people, struggle with it. They seem to miss human interaction, a necessity often overlooked in our fast-paced society. Introducing these conversation-friendly checkouts is a compassionate response to the human need for connection, particularly for the elderly. I hope UK supermarkets adopt this approach, a small but impactful change for improving life quality, especially for our older community members. Ringing the Bell by Laura Hitchcock, Hazelbury Bryan Primary School's call to make a noise against bullying was answered by a cathedral bell ringer's visit. Tim Joyner is a previous Lord Mayor of Westminster and a bell ringer at Brecon Cathedral. When Hazelbury Bryan Primary School settled on Make a Noise as the theme for the school's anti-bullying week, parent governor Romana Phillips knew just who to call. She couldn't think of anything more appropriate for making a noise than bell ringing. Tim was happy to travel from Brecon and also contacted the Dorset County Association of Church Bell Ringers to see if they might put on something special just for the school. St Mary and St James Church doesn't have its own band, the collective noun for a group of bell ringers, so a group of Dorset bell ringers from different churches volunteered to join Tim to perform a quarter peal. That's ringing 1,250 times around the bells, explains Tim. A quarter peal is 1,260 times we go round, and every time we go round it has to be in a different permutation or combination, different order of the bells. So, and you have to memorise it. So we have books like this, where methods for various numbers of bells are laid out, and you literally have to learn to do what that blue line tells you. So that's bell ringing music, and then you're not allowed to use it during the ringing at all. 
and at that point Tim held up a small book with pages filled with rows of numbers, looking remarkably similar to the old logarithm books readers of a certain age might remember from school. Tim then went on to explain something called rope sight. So you end up with something called rope sight, so you can see where all the bells are, and you know I need to be second space, third space, fourth space, fifth space. And you don't worry about what the other bells are doing, you just need to know which one you're going to follow. And you do that by listening, and by looking, and to an extent by how quickly your arms are going up and down. Tim was joined in Hazelbury by Robert Newton from Hilton, John Close from Winterbourne Whitchurch, Angie Jasper from Hampreston, and Jane and Nigel Pridmore. Nigel rings at Puddletown, and Jane is Dorset County Association training officer. So I ring everywhere, she said. All of the ringers gave up their afternoon to ring the court appeal. John and Robert came direct from a morning spent ringing near Bridport. On the first day, I talked to the children in school about size and pitch of bells and showed them how chord changes work, so they got a basic idea, explains Tim. It's actually quite difficult, but they did it. Then on the second day, we played some simple tunes with the handbells. It was a lot of fun, and they did so well. Lucy Odoms, Kestrel's class teacher, was in charge of the anti-bullying work in school. Making a noise doesn't mean a physical noise, she explains. The children know it means they shouldn't ignore bullying, and we've represented that through the bell ringing. All the children have been ringing bells themselves, and then we were really lucky to have the opportunity to make a really big noise in the bell tower. It's been a great activity and really kept them focused on making that noise, being able to tell someone if they ever saw bullying happen. We talked a lot about how people might not always be poorly on the outside, continues headteacher Mrs Waring. We've got to consider people's hearts and minds on the inside too. It's also been lovely to see that some of our challenging children, those with special educational needs, have absolutely shone this week. They've thoroughly enjoyed the bell ringing and it's been wonderful. In this month's BV magazine, nature writer Jane Adams takes a look at mosses and lichens, those mostly pale-coloured and discreet little plants that hug walls and stones and roofs. Only, as she explained to me, they are not plants, well, the lichens aren't, but strange organisms that we usually overlook, probably because they're not very big or eye-catching. They're amazing as to, I mean, they are very small, most of them, but uh, actually you don't have to go very far to see them because most people will have them literally just outside their back door, I would have thought, because they are so numerous and do grow pretty much everywhere. So it's just a matter of looking in a different way, I think, and maybe getting down down low and having a look at things. Get, getting down on your knees, because they are very overlooked, well, aren't they? They are, although I wouldn't suggest getting down on your knees in this weather, but <laughs> you might not ever get back up again. But but yes, I mean, the ones I found, which actually were um, some of the photographs that were used in the, in the magazine, um, were on the top of a gatepost. So you, they, you can find them higher up, uh, but yes, I mean, you're looking for them in sort of rotting wood, on stone... Um, I mean, you will see them on pavements, on rocks, on, you know, if you go to a cemetery, which is a bit um, macabre, but if you go to a cemetery, you'll see them on the tombstones and things like that. But once you start looking for them, that's it. You'll see them everywhere. 
But of course, as far as gravestones are concerned, they soften the contours, don't they? Yes. Yeah, they do. And you get the most amazing coloured ones because it's the... They come in sort of three main types of lichens. So you get ones that are like little shrubs. Um, then you get other ones that have got tiny little sort of leaf-like structures. And then you've got others that are like a crust, which sort of creep across the um, the gravestones. So, yeah, and they can be the most amazing oranges, reds, all sorts of different colours. So are, um, are they called crust lichens then, if they look like a crust? I do <laughs> Do you know, I've never, going back, I, I arranged a, what they call a bioblitz, is where you sort of go and look for as many different species as you possibly can. I arranged one in our, in our um, village and we had a lichen specialist come and this was quite a few years ago. And I thought, oh my God, what a, what a dull thing to do looking for lichens. And this guy just t- completely turned my understanding of lichens around because he was so enthusiastic. However, saying that, I've never learnt <laughs> their names. They are so difficult to learn. There's so many of them. So um, I just appreciate them for their colours and their different structures. Do, do they, Jane, do they have particularly long Latin names then? Yes, they do. I mean, there are others that have got common names so things like um, old man's beard which is one that that people might have heard of before which you get a lot of if you go to a really wet woodland and you see them hanging from the sort of the twigs and the branches and that's that's a, a lichen that's actually been used by humans for a very long time because I think they used to take it off and screw it up and sort of use it for lighting fires. But it's also known to have antibiotic and antifungal properties. They use lichens for lots of things. So it's in perfumes and they use it for um, clothes dyes and things like that. So although it's not something that we necessarily notice all the time, it's something that has been used over the centuries by man. I think it was probably... Somebody will probably tell me if I'm not right, but they used to use um, lichens in medieval times for for clothes dyeing, and I guess at the time they wouldn't have been. There would have been more lichens for a start, um, and they probably would have been able to go out and collect them quite easily. There would have been more lichens then, because lichens actually are very affected by our pollution and things like that nowadays. So. It's likely that there are less lichens nowadays than there were. I was going to ask you about that. I mean, because they look like very delicate organisms, um, and such as would be susceptible to pollution. Yeah, they are. They're they're particularly susceptible to nitrogen and and sulfur dioxide. So obviously, nitrogen is uh, nitrogen dioxide is is what we get in the road traffic, um, the fumes from road traffic. So. If you're living in a built-up area, you're likely to see fewer or smaller lichens, although some have started developing a sort of a, a way of being able to grow even in sort of really polluted areas. That's very interesting. So in other words, they are evolving to cope with our Adapt. pollution. Yeah, and I think some are even evolving to thrive 
in some of these sort of nitrogen or sulfur dioxide sort of areas, which is which is interesting. So, would you think then, uh, Jane, that what they're doing is 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 actually performing a valuable function in mopping up those uh, those pollutants? I don't know. I'm not an, I'm not expert enough to to say, but I would imagine. I know that when. Um, this expert came to to our village and he was saying that he was particularly interested in some of the lichens that he found in the cemetery because um, they had died off a lot of these lichens during their sort of industrial age but now some of them were starting to come back and they didn't know whether it was because the the air was a lot cleaner or whether they had become adapted so from what so you've it's, been... I imagine I imagine it's something that scientists are, are looking into. So from what you're saying then, Jane, it sounds to me as if lichens uh, and, and mosses too are the unsung heroes of the natural world. Yeah, and I think we don't realise, especially if you go onto mosses, I mean, lichens, a lot of people don't realise they're not a plant. So they're, they're something all on their own. They're actually a, a sort of a, a mashup of um, algae and fungus and something else called um, cyanobacteria and they work together um, to form lichens with mosses mosses can be uh, they're really really ancient they are a plant um, but they're a a non-flowering plant and they're a bit like the lichens they actually produce spores rather than seeds they go back sort of 450 million years so they were some of the first plants that would have been growing and they cause the um the right atmosphere and the right um ecosystem for other plants to be able to thrive so they sort of give they stabilize the soils and um, hold on to moisture and things like that, allowing things like lichens and other plants to grow. So, yeah, they're incredibly important. And and do we still have moss species that have barely evolved, if at all, in those last, um, what was it, 400 million plus years? I imagine we do, because if you look at, if you look at mosses, I mean, I have seen pictures of, of mosses that they found, fossilised mosses, and they look incredibly similar because they are quite a simple structure. So I imagine they haven't um, evolved massively. But being some of the first plants that were on the surface of, of, the, of the earth, they, they would have stayed, I would imagine, quite similar to what they were like. Having found a successful shape and... Uh and, and, yeah. and form, they, they, they stuck with it. <laughs> so, mosses are the main component of peat, aren't they? Yes, they are. I mean, a, a lot of people might have heard of sphagnum moss, which is, is one of the main sort of um, things in the composition of peat, which is, is the most amazing moss that holds on to, to water. And if you think about the, all the problems that we're having with flooding, um, nowadays, if we can encourage um, things like sphagnum, sphagnum moss, that will help with um, stopping the amount of flooding that's going on. You know, we've we've stripped away a lot of these things from the from the countryside. So, places we're lucky in Dorset because we've still got quite a lot of lowland heath. But if you go onto a heath in the wet 
areas, you'll find these areas of sphagnum moss. And if you sort of very carefully, if you were to walk on it, it's like a almost like a trampoline where you could sort of you could feel all the water underneath you. I, I know, Jane, that there are um, there are attempts going on uh, in this country and elsewhere to try and recover the uh, uh, those areas of peatland, and of course the sunset yeah. levels are, um, in particularly mm. uh, that you know they're trying to, uh, well they're they're succeeding in regenerating or, or saving the the peat bogs, and, and because aside from their um, their value at mopping up and holding water they're very good at mopping up uh, carbon dioxide too aren't they yes yes yeah, so obviously those sort of things are incredibly important nowadays so the more that we can encourage that and and the trouble is that a lot of these places are starting to dry out because of our warmer temperatures um, because we have damaged these areas that would have looked after themselves before they're now starting to dry out and you know we will start losing these mosses and lichens which helped um, keep that balance in the past so yes there there's a lot of conservation work going on across the country Um, even in in Dorset where I know they are trying to sort of um, get back those areas that were cut for peat um, in the sort of lowland heathlands around around Dorset, especially in South Dorset. Mosses take a long time to regenerate, don't they? They do, although they are great at, at regenerating. You know, they are one of the first things that tend to appear on sort of disturbed land. So, I mean, I don't know whether you've ever cleared an area in your garden, but if it's a sort of a, a damp and probably quite dark area it won't take very long for the mosses to move in um, my garden is is particularly dark in the winter um, back garden and front garden and I've given up trying to grow grass because the moss just takes over completely so I am I am embracing the moss in my garden because actually it's it's beautiful in the summer to walk on um, I think it's even nicer than grass and it's amazing in the sort of warm weather and stuff. I mean, it can look after itself in those really, really high temperatures. It just loses all the water and goes into almost like a um, a hibernation. And then when the water, you know, when it starts raining again, it will just bloom again. So yes. it hasn't actually died. It's just become dormant. It's gone into a state of suspended animation. Um, mm. Just to bring you back to the lichens, you mentioned the bright-coloured ones. I mean, is there? Do the bright, are the bright-coloured ones sending out a signal uh, that says, uh, "Don't eat me because I'm poisonous"? Oh, I don't know. You keep asking me questions. I don't know this time. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder whether it does. I mean, I know that. Um, you know, there's there's quite a few animals that actually rely on eating lichens. I mean, famously, coming up to Christmas, reindeers are you know one of one of the main things that they eat is is lichens. Um, but also over here, the squirrels, um, even snails, and some of the insects will will eat lichens as well. 
so, so going much further afield, going going to um, South America, for instance, I, I'm sure you've seen um, footage of of sloths with lichen growing on them. Yes, yeah, they're fantastic, aren't they? Fancy being something that that moves so slowly that lichens have a chance to grow on you. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Jane Adams waxing lyrical about lichens and mosses. This month's Dorset Island Discs have been chosen by internationally renowned Dutch harpist Gwyneth Ventink, who lives on a hilltop farm not far from Shaftesbury. She's performed in major concert halls all over the world with leading international orchestras. She's a professor of harp in the Netherlands and a visiting professor at the Royal College of Music in London. Her repertoire ranges from the Baroque to contemporary compositions, a number of them composed specially for her. Tall and willowy Gwyneth has been playing the harp very nearly all her life. She told me how her love affair with this beautiful instrument came about. So my father is Dutch and my mother is Hungarian. And they actually met in a music festival in Hungary, close to Budapest. Um, so the story goes that my mom saw my father when he went out of the car, stepped out of the car, and she thought, that's the man I'm going to marry. <laughs> Just like that? Just like that. And then they, you know, it was a festival. They saw each other sometimes. Um, but he left after a couple of weeks. And I thought they knew each other for like six weeks altogether. And then he proposed to her after six weeks. And then he had to go back to the Netherlands and they didn't see each other for a while. And then he came back with his mother and then they got married in Hungary. And then she came with him to Holland. And she was a piano player. Um, she was teaching at different places, um, very talented pianists from close to Seged, close to the Romanian border. And my father was a trombone player and a conductor. And then, um, yeah, they, they got together, married and got uh, first two other boys, so my brothers, They're, one is eight or eight and a half years older and the other uh, two years older. And they're not in music. I was <laughs> going to say, they must surely be musical <laughs> no, like you. They are very musical, but they decided not to go into the profession, no. They but they it. love music. I mean, funny enough, talking about, you know, my favorite music, music that's important to me and what I listen to, um, I, I relatively listen very little to music. And I would say my brothers listen to much more music than I do, <laughs> whereas I'm the musician. Yeah. You're the musician and you play it. And you play, yeah. you play the harp, uh, three of which are, are sitting in this room with us and mm. they're absolutely beautiful. Um, so why, what was it about the harp, you know, that, that appealed to you? Well, yeah, it's funny because even now when we when you ask me that question and I look at look at them, how they're standing there and like, well, how can you know, it's I can so imagine being I was four at the time, seeing them and hearing them above an orchestra, because that's where I've seen them for the first time and just falling in love and asking my mom, like, oh, I want to play that instrument that you hold between your legs. And she was like, oh, great, a cello, because she always there was like her second love, like a. Be, be, uh, after the piano and then I said no 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 the other the big instrument so they found out it was the harp and then they were a little bit disappointed um, and they waited for a while because they thought well you know it's not easy to play the harp and um, finding a teacher and if it's successful then you know the traveling all that 
Um, but then when I was five, they went to a music school and said, well, you know, she really wants to play the harp. And they said, well, that she can start with the recorder for two years. And then if that's going well, then she can choose the harp. And I was really, no, 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 not, I don't want to so play. So very the, different instrument. Very different, exactly. And I, I really knew, no, no, I, yes, I want to play music, but I want to play the harp. So my parents were really sweet and they hired, um, I just got private lesson at home. We got someone coming over and we rented, rented a little harp, like a Celtic one. And that went, um, yeah, that went really fast. I loved it. And I had like my little first TV performance when I was six and in like a dress that my neighbor made, you know, like all very cute. Um, yeah, and I knew it. I was like, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. And the Celtic harp presumably has got far fewer strings than that big beast that's over in the corner there, that beautiful yes. gilded harp. Yes, absolutely. That's a small one. Um, I'll show you one later on the picture as well. And that's the one you see more on folk instruments. And um, it's, it's the kids usually start on that because it's smaller, but it's also a full grown instrument. Like if you play folk music, obviously, that's it's um, it's a it's a really beautiful instrument. But because it has hooks to change the tone pitch instead of pedals, that's, this is called like a pedal harp, it has um, a limit in what you can do also with harmonies because you have a little hooks that you can change, but it only changes one position. You can do either one side or the other, whereas pedals have three positions. So you have more options basically to play more harmonically complex music. So you would have to change those hooks for a new piece of music, would you, every time? No, within a piece. Within the piece? Yes, like for example, if you have a piano, you've got the white keys and the black keys. So you go with your fingers, obviously, from the white keys to the black keys. And on the harp, it's tuned all in a certain key. But then if you want to, let's say, go to a black key, you have to change a hook and you have to do it with your hands as well. So you play and then quickly you change and then you go back. So you can see if it goes really fast and you have to change a lot of keys the whole time that there is a limit of what you can do. So you either stay in a certain key, like you put the hooks in a certain key, like a E major or A major, and there's not too many harmonic changes in the piece, then it's perfectly fine. But if you, ha you, know, you don't want to play Chopin, which is a l with a lot of chromatic changes on the, on the little Celtic harp. And that's why with the pedal harp, where they are, the pedals, you move them with your feet. You can play and at the same time change all the harmonic shifts with your feet. But a complicated instrument to play then? It's, I guess it's Not complicated, you exactly, for years, you know. and especially when you start when you're five, it's, it's second nature, right? Um, but yeah, there is some complication that you have to use your hands and obviously your feet and then kind of remember and feeling where your pedals are. So it's, that's, um, yeah, that sometimes kind of makes the brain work hard. <laughs> <laughs> Not to mention the hands. And uh -huh. Tell me, when you're, when you're actually performing in a concert, what's actually going through your, your, your what do you actually feel? What, is the, what does it make you do, you, do you find yourself almost as if you were somewhere else and there was nobody in the room with you listening? Very different, I would say. I think each concert is is unique um, it's different if you're playing in an intimate setting when people are quite close like I had a concert two weeks ago 
with only like 20 to 30 people, very intimate. And then you can really almost feel the energy of each person or you feel the dialogue that you have and you really have that personal interaction. And that's very different when you're playing in a big hall or in a theater where it's almost like a black hole where you can't see the audience. I find that sometimes difficult because, you know, you have you have the elements of the music, you've got your own personality, you've got the acoustics, you know, the building where you're playing and the audience. I think it's really a, a communication and a collaboration between all those elements. And when the audience isn't there visually, it's it's difficult because you I, I want as a performer to have that connection. Um, and audiences gives back in energy as well. Like I think, although it's very often not in classical settings with feedback in the sense of audio or that they say something or in that sense, still you feel that presence. And regarding what I'm thinking, that's a, that's a difficult question because I think obviously when you're, when you're playing and you're preparing a piece, um, you're aware of, you're in the moment and, and of what you want to share with, with that piece. Um, I just wondered if you got kind of lost completely so that the, everything else just went away. I think there are sometimes those magical moments, I would say, when um, I have it with certain pieces more than others. Sometimes some that are so technically complex that you just really have to be present in the here and now. Um, then it's obviously diff more difficult to lose yourself. But there's one piece <clears throat> where the kind of meditative element is quite obvious in there and it goes on for a very long time. Uh, it's one of the pieces actually that I chose also for this list. Um, and that is a piece where you can almost get into that meditative state and I'm still present, but there is this kind of deep silence that comes at the same time, which is to me such a beautiful experience, um, whether I play and I experience it or I listen to music or I'm in a concert, but where I feel that coming together of the power of music and the power of silence at the same time. I think that's such kind of a, a vacuum or the opposite of a vacuum, but that kind of space opening up, which, um, which just transcends so much. You just mentioned the word silence. Mm. And here you are up on the top of a, a rather wild and, and windy hill. <laughs> surrounded by forest and mm. you have lots of silence up here don't you yeah do you appreciate appreciate that as a as a musician and as somebody who uh, came from holland which uh, is is quite populated isn't it therefore probably quite noisy it is yes it is very populated um silence is something i always looked for or always longed for i really need my time also before a concert, after a concert, or just in general times to recharge. So talking about a recharge setting, this is amazing. I mean, I used to travel in my teens and later in my twenties, a lot of times to India to kind of, you know, go on a, on a mountain there to find the silence. Um, and this is indeed, it's quite rough here, I think the nature, which is quite spectacular. Like this morning, I, 
I wake up always early, I get the dog first out, go to the chickens. Um, and if there was quite a harsh wind and, you know, the snow starts now. So the elements are, are really in your face. Um, and I think that's super creative. Um, and it makes me also very grounded. Like you really are confronted with the elements. You see the, the seasons change. And, um, you know, when COVID was here, I felt sometimes a little bit embarrassed about how I missed certain times of, of the cycles of, of the seasons when I'm traveling. I remember, must have been 10 years ago, where I was driving in my car, I think in Germany, and it was like the end of August or end of autumn. And I kind of realized I completely missed autumn <laughs> because I was so much in cities and so much traveling and not paying a lot of attention to that. Um, and now I'm, you know, it's the opposite environment, which I feel really grateful for. You're, yeah. you're quite new to Dorset, aren't you? Do you, do you love it already as a county? Oh, absolutely. I love it. I feel very blessed actually to be here and proud when people are, you know, where do you live in the UK? And I'm like Dorset and always the responses are also very positive. Um, and it's been I mean, it's not that long. It's like four years, I guess, but it feels a lifetime already. Completely. Maybe because I've been here quite a long time, you know, the COVID year and all that. It's got into your blood already, yeah, has it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think especially that that element of the silence, the power of the nature, the tradition that is still there and the, I would say, the balance between how human life is integrated and, and collaborates with nature is I think in such a beautiful balance here. Um, well, let, let's yeah. let's talk about your music choices. Yes. Um, because sure. of course that's the opposite yeah. of silence, isn't it? <laughs> so what, what have you chosen for your first uh, yeah. disc? So my first disc, with, so they're not in a particular order, but the first piece is this piece I mentioned about the repetition that goes on and it's a it's a piece by a Dutch composer Simeon ten Holt um, and it's called Canto Ostinato which is basically Holland's most popular classical music piece um, and it's written in the end 70s and he wrote it in a couple of years where he was a surrealist composer at the time so he mo made quite atonal music um, but secretly, he was getting inspired by the minimal mu musicians in the States. So Philip Glass, Terry Riley. Um, so he, he started working on this piece, which is very harmonic and very beautiful, actually. Um, and he felt like, oh, my God, this is, a, you know, I can't come out with this kind of music. But then at the end, he got so many good response from composers who kind of heard him working on it. So he brought it out. Um, and it's a piece originally for one to four pianos with a certain element of freedom for players in um, dynamics, in certain amount of repetition of self. So it's made out of little cells or bars. And then as a, as a performer, you can choose how many times you want to repeat that. Um, and it can take up to a couple of hours if you want to, or days if you really stretch it out. And when I heard this piece, I was just so mesmerized and I thought I have to transcribe this for harp. Um, 
So I have made an arrangement for harp and electronics and visuals and I have toured with that in the past. But I've always wanted a version for acoustic harp and that one is coming out next May. So I'm really excited about that. I recorded that in Fort Abbey in Dorset. Um, and this version I'm sharing with you because you know my recording isn't out yet. It's a beautiful recording for two pianos and a marimba. And um, yeah, it's, it's a piece that just plays an important role. I mean, I've played at the most funky occasions, you know, like underground techno festivals in Japan to, to weird places in Russia and, and um, played it in India and then went on a state visit with the king. And so it's, it's really like a wide um, audience that got attracted to it, which I really loved. So young people, um, people who didn't really know anything about classical music. And I'm always mesmerized. It's kind of a ritual, this whole music. So I'm always mesmerized with how the audience responds to it and how they embrace it. What about record number two? That, that one sounds fascinating. So yeah. is your next one a complete contrast? My next one is, um, well, that's something that is important to me as a, has an important part in my musical career. Um, it's, it's the Orfeo, the, the first opera written uh, by Claudio Monteverdi. And I played it on the Baroque harp. Um, and it's, I mean, it's such a powerful piece where, you know, almost in the first, first moment in musical time, the human expressions were so poignantly brought out in music. Um, and the way he writes for harp at that time, there is a moment, Pocente Spirito, in the opera, where about two thirds down the opera, where the, op the harp has a solo of a couple of minutes where everything is silent and this small solo comes in. Um, you know, kind of seducing there to opening the underworld to um, for to to come in and and the it's such a it's such a powerful music uh, powerful music and um, moment also in the opera. So I've played that a couple of times, and it's definitely one piece that I wanted to put in the list. Number three, mm. what comes next? Number three is. A piece, I think, of classical music that means a lot to me. And that's actually a piece when my partner and I got together. Is um, a piece of Brahms, the Symphony Number no. Three. Um, one movement of there, and yeah, that's it's it's a piece that John Elliot was conducting um, at the time when we got together and I've known that piece for a long time and I always thought it was um, such a, a moving and just utterly beautiful piece that I thought, well, I'd really like to have some Brahms in there. So it's got yeah. a special new meaning for you now. Yes, absolutely. What about record number four? Record four, well, now we've got some kind of Indian things coming up. So that's a recording by an Indian Bansuri flute player, uh, Hari Prashad Chaurasia. And he is an absolute legend on the Indian flute. Uh, so Bansuri is the bamboo flute. And at one point in my career, I, w I got a scholarship from the Dutch government and they 
let me do anything I wanted to do to explore. And I said, well, I want to do something with Indian music. And so they connected me to him. Um, we played a little bit together. I have no idea what I was doing. This was classical Indian music. And he said, well, just play something in E. And then the next thing he invited me to a concert in New York, um, where, which was just an incredible experience. And, and he is, I think together with Zakir Hussain on the tabla and you had Shiv Kumar Sharma uh, on the sun tour, um, such a legend. Um, and even being in the presence, playing with him, uh, is was like a life-changing <laughs> experience. So I've played with him since that time. So I think over the last 15 years, a couple of times. And he's just a, a huge musical inspiration and example to me. Moving on then to record number five. What have you chosen for that? Well, that is linked to my previous recording of Shiratia, is that first performance I had with him in New York there was uh, also a saxophone player from California, George Brooks, and he is a composer um, and saxophone player of, in, of jazz and Indian music. I didn't know him at the time, got to know him, and he became a collaborator and good friend, and we performed quite a lot together. And we set up a trio with Indian violin, which is Kala Ramnat, a North Indian violin, George on saxophone and me on harp. So we are kind of creating a new genre, basically, of, you know, class influence of classical music, the improvised northern Indian world, and then the jazz and also improvised composed thing elements of George's style. So that's been always um, a complex way also and we're quite you know it's always looking for what do you know com composing own melodies and then thinking of how, what we're going to do with it but one of the most fruitful and and meaningful things that i've i've done as well very exploratory by the sounds of it yeah very yeah and exciting yeah absolutely what about record number six record number six is again slightly in the e in the asia realm so that's a recording of a kawali singer nusrat uh, fateh ali khan um pakistani singer so i've traveled to india quite a lot since i was 19 and uh, first to just to travel i love the country um or to meditate and stay there for a while and i when i was in delhi which was usually my base sometimes for a month or sometimes two months I would always go to Kawali on the Friday, which is kind of an evocation and what they sing um, when the sun sets on a Friday, sometimes on a Thursday, and it's part of the Sufi community. So there is a kind of shrine uh, of Kab where Kabir, the poem, uh, the poet Kabir is, is, is um, buried and um, Hazrat Inayat Khan. So that's the also musician who brought the Sufism to the West and who was a teacher of Debussy and Scriabin and all of that. Um, so that shrine, they have this Kawali and um, Nusrat uh, Fatih Ali Khan is one of the you know, most known Pakistani pa Kawali singers. Um, and I've always listened to that and I find that just mesmerizing and uh, 
some supercharge for the soul. <laughs> yeah, there's a very strong connection with the East, particularly India. Does mm. this reflect, is this reflected in your seventh choice then as well? No, that's where it stops. <laughs> <laughs> we go to South America now. Um, so my favorite, and I wanted to have a, a harp piece in there as well, is uh, the Harp Concerto by Alberto Ginastera. Um, it's a fantastic piece. Um, for me, my favorite harp piece. Um, and I've, I've done that through my career many times. And it really showcases the harp or what it can do. Um, it's very melodic, it's very expressive, it's quite wild at moments. And the orchestra is really big with a very big percussion on the back. Um, super exciting um, and just a great piece. Does it have any of the elements of traditional, what we think of as traditional South American music in it? Um, well, depends, of course, what how what what comes up. But if I would say South America, you know, the per percussive elements um, and the dance-like feel in it, like the third movement is in um, is in three a lot in is either in three or in two. So it's like So it's super jamming. It's super swinging. Um, so yeah, that's really in there. Yeah, and it's a lot of fun. So that probably counts as well. Well, I suppose if you're not having fun, um, why do it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and finally, your final record choice, so number eight. What have you, what have you okay. chosen for that? Well, my eighth one is, uh, is, is slightly um, out of the norm of the other ones, but that's a, a recording I was thinking um, what means something to also when I was growing up. So I've got two older brothers. Um, so we used to go to Hungary a lot every summer um, and every winter, sometimes even with, with spring. So we had these long car journeys um, and we would either li listen to Pink Floyd or a lot to Die Straits. And I think if there is one band that I really grew up with a lot and listened to a lot with my brothers, it's Die Straits. So I chose Brothers in Arms of Die Straits. I think I'll be absolutely with you on that one. <laughs> so, uh, Gwyneth, then, what about you are allowed um, a, a book? What are you going to take? Yeah, um, I'm such a reader. I love, so it was very difficult to make a choice. Um, I thought that it would be good to have something light and funny in times. Um, and I love, love, love David Sudaris as a writer. So any of his books, basically, I think are great, but maybe Naked, I think that's a fantastic book. I wonder if possibly there's a compendium, because we might be able to allow you that, that you could take them all then, couldn't you? <laughs> that would be a very nice compilation. Now, what about your luxury? Well, I thought that was easy. That, that's going to be my harp. <laughs> and then, okay, if I would have to choose, I would probably take my pedal harp, yeah. Although... I'm thinking now, of course, if once the mechanics know, they will they will last for a while. Yeah, it will be my pedal harp. So I suppose it goes without saying that if a giant wave came along straight for your island, <laughs> it would be the harp that you would rescue. <laughs> um, from if I have to to save one thing, if you have to save one, thing. I could sail on my harp. No, we could, it's my boat. <laughs> Maybe I can use my harp as a boat. That's why. I... <laughs> and oh. playing all along over the ocean, I paddle back. It would be a great shame to see if it didn't float. I mean, supposing it didn't float. It's wood, though, of course. It's wood. Float, That's what I could it? work on that, couldn't I?
I could I could improve my kind of skills there and then make it into an amazing boat and then keep the strings on. Yeah, it sounds like a good plan, doesn't it? <laughs> Gwyneth Ventink choosing her Dorset Island discs. As well as being one of the world's leading harpists, a friend tells me that Gwyneth is also a great cook. And that's all Terry and I have for you in this first episode for December 2023 of the BV podcast. Do join us again in a couple of weeks' time for the last of 2023's BV podcasts. Until then, it's bye-bye from me, Jenny Devitt. And until next time, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett.